Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. We're back. Thank you so much for your patience with us during our hiatus. It allowed yours truly to have a wonderful sabbatical and for us as an organization to gear up for what we're half seriously calling Embird 2.0, which is really just a collection of initiatives and projects that we're hoping to launch in 2018. As you'll notice, we've rejigged the format of this show a bit. Gone for now are the interviews, though you can still hear the inimitable Scott Jones converse with various folks over on his Give and Take podcast, and I highly commend that program to you. Also very excited to announce that going forward, longtime Mockingbird contributor and my good friend R.J. Heyman will be joining myself and Sarah as our third host slash wheel. We're also slowing the pace down a little to every other week, which will hopefully allow us to keep the quality where we'd like it to be and, of course, not need another hiatus. But we've got a lot of great stuff in store for you and cannot wait to get to it. So here we go. Well, all right. Mockingcast rides again. I am so excited to be here kind of virtually with my good friends, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman, ready to embark on this sort of new chapter in uh, the Mockingcast history. Is history a terrible word? (laughs) Uh, Silly, ridiculous word. We got a lot to talk about, but before we do, I just wanted to check in with you guys. Sarah, why don't you tell us about RJ in five sentences or less? this goes. RJ is, I don't remember what your title is. It's very important. Doesn't matter. He is a priest at St. Martin's where I'm a priest and he has three boys. He has two boys that are like junior high-ish. Yeah, one Mm -hmm. high school, one junior high. And then he has a baby, which is insane and super admirable. So, Well, that's why I did it, so that I would be admired. (laughs) That's what I was thinking about. and exhausted. Yes, it's a good combination. He's got an incredible voice for radio. That's really yeah. the only reason we decided to invite him on here, right? 100%. Tell us, what does RJ stand for? How do we say it? Well, I, I can't actually even say my name. It's embarrassing. The closest I could get is Rutger Jan. I was born in Amsterdam. It's Dutch. But when I tell Dutch people what my name is, they give me a quizzical look, and then I spell it for them, and then they pronounce it correctly. Oh, no. And I'm left, yeah, that's that's a total, that's a 100% true story. So it's like Rutger Jan, pretty much. <laughs> but we're the only Heymans in America which is kind of awesome. So my email is my last name at gmail.com, which is kind of sweet. As I'm sure it will come out over time, RJ and I have a long and glorious history together. <laughs> we worked together as youth ministers and have just been dear friends. And we worked in New York City together. And my nickname for him was always Rector Rutger. But yes. sometimes people thought that sounded inappropriate somehow, that you're, you're getting really close to the word rectum. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> wow, okay. Anyway. It's early. Rector Rutger, I'm glad you're here with us. It is nothing else an excuse to see your smiling Dutch <laughs> face, Dutch-American face. It's good to be here. I'm honored. How's Thanksgiving for you guys? 
It was great. We went to we went to Austin for a week, which we love, and hung out with some of our good friends and just did some swimming and ate at some good restaurants and our kids hung out and it was really fun. Yeah, just swimming as you do over Thanksgiving. That's right. Why, why not? That's right. Hey, it was actually a little chilly. It was like mid seventies, yeah. but you know, I, I uh, gutted it out. Yeah. Sarah, your, your Thanksgiving looked really just totally was, boring. Yeah, and it was a real uneventful. drag. We went to San Diego. It was so pretty. And we did Disneyland in a day, which is the way to do it if you want to save a little mm. dough. So we spent 11 hours at Disneyland with a three-year-old and a six-year-old. We ate a oh ton of churros. The only hard thing about it is that we did the San Diego Zoo the next day, which is, you know, like this super famous zoo. And I was like, this sucks because I had just been at Disneyland. <laughs> so I was like, I want to go back to Disneyland, which is like speaks to the level of culture that really appeals to me. I was like, I'll totally give up the zoo for Disneyland. I tried to actually talk my husband into that. And he's like, no, we have tickets. We're doing this. So what's the Disneyland highlight these days? You know, it's just it's getting to take my kids to things like it's a small world. I mean, that, you know, like I. I'm one of like those Disney families. Like we grew up, I like the last time my parents took us to Disney world, I was in college. Like I'm kind of all in with Disney. Huh. Um, yeah. So it's just like getting my kids there to see it for the first time was incredible. Rutger, just when you thought you were, RJ, when you, when you thought you were out of the Disney uh, world, they pull you right hey, back I'm in. Gonna, we, we actually went for spring break two years ago and I was dread, I was dreading it. I was like, oh man, it was awesome. We had such a good time, and I'm totally. And our kids had a great time. They, they actually. This is really sweet, and hopefully Marshall won't listen to this podcast. But my two older boys are, have already planned out how they're going to like come home from college and surprise their little brother by taking him to Aww. Disney World. They'll be like, "Oh, Aww. we're going to kindergarten." Guess what? No, actually, we're going to the airport. <laughs> we're going to awesome. Disney World. So that'll be uh, that's something to look forward to. Remember that Jack Handy deep thoughts. Where he's like, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to take my son to Disney World, but I didn't have enough money. So instead, I took him to a burnt down shack in the woods. And I said, oh, no, Disneyland burnt down. It must have been something you did. It must have been something you did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, guys, let's get, yeah. let's get on with it. On with the show, as they say. A lot to talk about today. But before we get into the sort of heavy stuff, and of course... There is a ton of heavy stuff going on right now. Oh, man. Picked a hell of a week to come back. McSweeney's this week, Julie Mitchell put together a list, which is pretty funny and betrays a pretty deep familiarity with church. Put together a, a, a list of types of church First one is the more solemn you are, the more God loves mm-hmm. you, that kind of church. Second one is we have food here and we meet in the back room <laughs> of an art gallery. The third one is the type of church where women should only be seen in conservative denim because God is an old Navy shareholder. Mom jeans. Which I have one favorite, but I wanted to know what, what you guys. Uh, what my favorite, favorite was, was eleven. Is that your favorite? I love eleven. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely. There's no read rules it. here. God read, read is 11. whatever you feel it is. Do you want a cookie? We're all ants. We're all ants. <laughs> That's yeah. the best part. We're all ants. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of vest wearing. <laughs> we actually visited a church on vacation that shall go nameless, not this past vacation, but a couple ago. And Neil was, our son was really small. And at communion, they gave him the wafer and they were like, do you want a cookie? Like as they were giving it to him. And I was like, what are you doing? Why uh-huh. are you calling it that? And Neil was like, why are they calling it? You want a cookie? You want a cookie. Yeah. So it's real life. RJ, which is well, your favorite one know, of these? Number 18 hit a little too close to home for me. I spend my spring break saving people I'm better than. That's why Jesus <laughs> loves me. 
I was like, oh, yeah, that was I had a phase in my life where that was that may may or may not have been how I spent some of my vacation time and and definitely why I did it, because, you know, I made a really smart choice that everyone else should make, too. Oh, my goodness. We all know. I mean, Sarah, I don't know if we've I think we've talked about this before, but you know that RJ wore a beret in uh, (laughs) high school, right? He was like casually. Okay. Not, yeah. So he, yeah, t- yeah. You tell know. us about the beret. Well, I did, definitely had a beret, and then it also went with like a like a pretty large, about a three inch wooden cross that I got on like an Emmaus nope. weekend that had a <laughs> um had a rainbow uh-uh, uh, like man. lanyard with it, and people and and people would be like, so is that the cross they crucified Jesus on? <laughs> You know, which I thought was pretty, so big. pretty because it's so big. So it's just this gigantic cross I'm wearing around my neck. So I really went. I may or may not have been very right. happy in high school, but I really, I really went for it. You know, hey man, man. you can't get out, yeah. go all in. Yeah. You know, what? so. <laughs> I mean, that's it right. feels like that's as good an opening for talking yeah. about masculinity as any, RJ. I was sort of like a more Christian, slightly more masculine ducky, you know, from Pretty in Pink. Oh. Like, yeah, you know, that's that's uh, that's the direction we're headed here. Well, there's a lot to talk about here. And one of our jumping off points to speaking about sort of just what's dominating the headlines. Ugh. As of yesterday, there are headlines about Matt Lauer and Garrison Keillor. It's being called an epidemic. It's been called an outbreak. outbreak. Whatever you want to call it, it's certainly You'll catch uh, it. an outbreak. I know. Um, Sorry. <laughs> it's uh it's certainly on people's minds and the way in for us today i thought and it's uncomfortable it's funny rj and i were talking about how even beforehand he's like are you sure you want to talk about this on the air and i don't know what's worse to not talk about mm-hmm. it or to talk about it but we're going to talk about stephen marsh's really i thought brave and wide-ranging and actually pretty generous article in the new york times that a lot of people hated which sort of maybe proves that he's got a point called the unexamined brutality of the male libido. It sort of opens as after weeks of continuously unfolding abuse scandals, men have become quite literally unbelievable. What any given man might say about gender politics and how he treats women are separate and unrelated phenomena, liberal or conservative, feminist or chauvinist, woke or benighted, young or old, Fox News or in the New Republic, a man's stated opinions have next to no relationship to his behavior. He goes on to say that men arrive at this moment of reckoning woefully unprepared. Most are shocked by the reality of women's lived experience. Almost all are uninterested or unwilling to grapple with the problem at the heart of this, the often ugly and dangerous nature of the male libido. Of course, acknowledging the brutality of the male libido is not some kind of excuse. And he goes on to talk about how Freud talked about the, the sort of Thanos and the destruction uh, roiling mass underneath the surface. But the final thing I want to read before I open it up to you guys is at the end, he kind of twists it in a way that I found fascinating. He said, women are calling for their pain to be recognized. Many men are quite willing to offer this recognition. It means that they don't have to talk about who they are which means they don't have to think about what they are. Much easier to retreat into ever more shocked and purient silence or into the sort of reflection that seems less intended as honesty and more aimed to please. Sex is an impediment to any idealism, which is why the post-Weinstein era will be an era of gender pessimism. What if there is no possible reconciliation between the bright, clean ideals of gender equality and the mechanisms of human desire? Meanwhile, sexual morality, so long resisted by liberals, has returned with a vengeance, albeit under progressive terms. The sensation of righteousness, which social media doles out in ever-diminishing dopamine hits, drives the discussion but also limits it. 
Unable to find justice or even imagine it, we are returning to shame as our primary social form of sexual control. Now, that is all I'm reading, and I want to put this hot potato in Sarah's lap as soon as I can. Oh my gosh. Well, Dave and I have talked about this a lot over the past 48 hours. There's just, I have a lot of thoughts. I thought Marsh's piece was brilliant and his book, The Unmade Bed is, I cannot recommend it enough to people who are married considering marriage. It's just so excellent. The way that he honestly talks about men and women, you know, (laughs) this is like, one of those moments where I'm like, what am I saying? But I still feel bad for men. I don't know. I do. And I know I shouldn't, but I feel like this is just going to lead to more isolation. I mean, I feel like where we are and sort of the cultural response that's happening, like, I mean, I'm seeing in my newsfeed so many women who are like, the fact that men are even talking about this now is traumatizing to me. And I'm like, oh my God. So like, they can't be honest about, I think Marsh is a really good point. I think we can talk about women's like sexuality and preferences all day long, but we can't talk about men's. And you're just going to like repress this stuff more. It's going to eke out in weird ways more. And like, we don't want to hear what the truth is. And Honestly, I think the truth is too scary for us. And I don't mean that in like some sense that like all men are like secret, like rapists. But I I mean, I think gender politics and gender roles moved so quickly in this country. And we're expecting everyone to suddenly like live in this world that doesn't exist. And we're expecting everyone to live in some sort of perfect world that doesn't exist in terms of of gendered stuff. I mean, my husband and I were talking about this the other day, and I've never worked in a place that there hasn't been some issue of sexual harassment. I mean, not anything huge, but like it is a part of men and women bumping into each other to some extent, right? I mean, I think that that's a part of this. All this assault stuff is awful. But then I began to ask myself, how are we raising our daughters as a mother? Like I, all I could think about is when I was like 11 years old, there was a kid at the pool and he kept grabbing girls like under the water. All the other girls' parents were like, cause he was a weird kid, obviously. And all the other kids' parents were like, you know, you don't have to be friends with him. And like, but you, you need to be nice to him. And like, let's not be too hard on him. And my dad was like, I want you to grab him by the genitals and I want you to pull as hard as you can. And then when he screams, I want you to keep pulling. And like, I just am like, what if Gosh, we, what I if love we Sarah's told dad. her? I mean, and then, and then it becomes this, but it, then it becomes this whole thing of like, well, why should women have to defend themselves? Well, I mean, cause we do like, maybe that's the reality that we're living in right now. And maybe, you know, it's like any sin that everyone's like so shocked it's happening. And it's like, can we stop wasting time on the shock? And can we find a way to make sure that girls feel like they can stand up for themselves to make sure that girls feel like they're powerful? I, you know, I don't know. Can we, can we find space for men to talk openly about their sexuality? I mean, as much as the wild at heart stuff I can find pretty troubling, Dave, the piece that you wrote about this pointed to it. I mean, church, especially some of the more conservative circles of Christianity actually give men safer space to talk about their sexuality a a lot more than other places. So I have a lot of thoughts, obviously. I don't know. What do you think, RJ? Yeah. RJ, you want to weigh in? It's scary. It's scary to talk about. Gosh, what do I think? I mean, the first thing I have to say, like straight off the bat is 
what has happened to these women that are coming out and talking about their experiences with politicians and people in the media, it's awful. It's, 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 I don't really want to say it's shocking. I, I don't, I, I don't know. It is shocking. It's not shocking. Like I grew up with all boys, you know, I went to an all boys boarding middle school. <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of time around guys. So it's, I don't, I don't know that it's, um, shocking. Hopefully that has something to do with like my Christian anthropology and, and knowing that people are deeply wounded, but I don't know how to talk about it. Where was the money quote from, um, from that article? The crisis we're approaching is fundamental. How can healthy sexuality ever occur in conditions in which men and women are not equal? How are we supposed to create an equal world where male mechanisms of desire are inherently brutal? We cannot answer these questions unless we face them, but facing them, I don't know how we do that. And there is shame about talking what's actually going on in the male mind. And at the same time, Dave, I loved your response to it in the way that you tied in Ladybird, because having all brothers and having all boys and having a wife who has all brothers, the question which it raised in my mind is like, do I really understand women at all? I mean, I've been married for going on 19 years now. Well, you were writing about the relationship between the mother and the daughter and about how that was a very kind of specific kind of relationship that you only understood if you really had like a lot of women in your life. I was like, I'm not sure I under, I'm not sure I understand that, you know, and that I want to seek to understand as much as I want to be understood. But to think about living in a world where everyone is just kind of laid bare and you can actually see what's going on is sort of scary. It's not you even know? really um, possible. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. the thing is like... There's just such a lack of honesty and shame and delusion and hiding. It's like the overwhelming message is, I'm, I'm going to need you to be less of a man. Like, if you could tone down your manness, that would make me feel a lot better. Like, that's, I say that, like, carefully, but I feel, I mean, and I'm raising a boy, and it's like, you know, I just feel like that's the overwhelming message, even to little boys sometimes. It's like, we're going to, you're going to need to, we're going to need you to be less of a boy instead of facing the reality that the genders are completely different. I mean, Dave and I were talking about when I was in seminary, that was like the big discussion about like gender is a created thing, right? Gender is not real. Like that was a huge part of a lot of the conversations people were having in seminary. And all mm -hmm. I could think was you all do not have children. And they didn't. None of them had children because you know, Neil will turn anything into a gun and Annie will turn anything into a doll. Everything that's happened is awful. I want to be very clear about that. However, I feel like the thing that we're not wanting to face that terrifies us is that like we just have a real problem with men inherently. And like we have a real problem with the fact that our current culture doesn't accept like the full picture of what a man can be in a general term. To play devil's advocate a little bit, so the people that are out there listening being like, okay, here we are in the moment with all these revelations of yeah. these women having been treated terribly. And sure. here we are saying, yeah, yeah, poor yeah. men, <laughs> you know, like, is it, you know, I think there's absolutely time and place to have this, con mm -hmm. to have that conversation. And I, I think it's an important conversation to have. And I'm glad these issues are being raised, but it's also, it's a tough time to talk about it, to well, talk but about it's poor a men. Sure, you but know, it's a part of the bigger conversation. Like, if you're going to have the conversation about what's going on, like, you have to have the conversation that part of the reason that men are behaving this way is because we've asked them to be much less of who they are and to hide much more of who they are. It's a weird culture for all of us. But, like, you know, we keep – and Marsh writes about this. Like, we want vulnerability. And we want people to be honest. But, like, I don't want guys I work with to be like, sorry, I can't hear what you're saying. I just keep staring at your boobs. And yet – you know what I mean? This is the reality, <laughs> but like, please hide that. I don't want to know. You know what I mean? So it's like so dark. I mean, yeah. the whole thing is so dark. And so of course there's been this heinous violence committed against 
women. Somebody is yeah. going to suffer for all of this. But yeah, I do think like it's something there is no cure for male desire and it's going to go someplace. And if it's driven underground, it's probably going to go someplace well, worse. Actually, it's funny. There is, though, it, you know, I, I read that article and I was sort of terrified last night, um, but it reminded me of a This American Life episode called Testosterone from a few years back, which is fascinating. There's a few different stories. I recommend it. But the first one is about a guy who for a period of months had no testosterone whatsoever, like none in his system. And then they figured out what it was and whatever. But listen to the way he talks about that. He had, he, he, I mean, it's just one person, you know, it's not scientific, it's just anecdotal. But he said he basically had no desire for anything, like at all. He said he would, his, his, every day he would eat a loaf of white bread with mayonnaise on it. So that was interesting. Um, seriously, I mean, it, listen to it. And then the second one, second one is about a transgender man who starts taking massive testosterone injections. He says the transition that happens in his mind riding the subway from being like, oh, that's an attractive woman. How might I start a conversation with that person? To like, he says, constant repetitive pornographic mm -hmm. images going through my mind, mm -hmm. unable to stop them. You know, just mm -hmm. uh, it, it was powerful and um Anyway, there's a lot that could be said about that. I mean, the, the first guy who was without testosterone, the way he described the experience, it was almost a little bit mm -hmm. sort of like nirvana, like he stopped wanting anything. And he actually talked about God. He said he, he almost felt more insightful, but that desire and wanting and motivation and none of it was a part of anything. So uh, it made yeah. me think of Serenity, the movie. You guys ever seen that? Oh yeah, yeah. Maybe th that's a lot that's that. totally right. So. My dad would say that we should all read the disappearance by Philip Wiley, which sort of looks at a planet with just men and a planet of just women, and they both sort of fall apart without the other in ways that they weren't expecting. So there's no clear answer here. I, I think that I do think one of the things that we are grappling with immediately, and you can't. You, RJ, I think in part in terms of listening to what's happening is you have to be like, why it is pretty much all men. And to deny that is to sort of hide around it. And are men just basically as much worse versions of women? Except or I will say there have been a few like female teachers recently in the news who are right. like getting together with their with their high school students, you right. know. And so not many, yeah. a couple. It's not as high profile, but that you know, what's what is it about the well, well they the, have um what is it about the Anyway, I think you're right though. You know? The the poor men thing. We just but we do need to give men uh some kind of vision that's positive. The only thing that people I know when that when they ask like sort of the blue state type guys are like, well, what does it mean to be a man? And the, the only answer they have is to be really oh, respectful of women. And that's, that's great. Mm. But we have to give them a little more. Is there anything that's distinctly male and distinctly positive? The students I work with, as I work with all these undergraduate men, they don't know how to answer that question that doesn't basically involve sports. And even that, they don't feel they can really talk about. However, we don't need to answer that today. But I do I do want to point to Abby Farson Pratt, my good friend here in Charlottesville, who wrote this wonderful thing about how do we deal with the art that's left over from, you know, Louis C.K. and Woody and, Allen. Um, Woody Allen. And she said, this is what she writes. She said, when a politician misbehaves, it's easy in theory to wave our hands and say, politicians, they're all filthy. But when our favorite novelist or comedian or musician misbehaves, we feel conflicted. We feel like we've been implicated ourselves. Indeed, there's a flicker of recognition when we denounce a bad artist. We expertly suppress this feeling, this lurking sense that we may also resemble monsters, and then return to the joys of, quote, loudly denouncing the monster in question. We never want to be in the same boat with the dirtbag poets and directors and rock stars, but maybe we always have been.
Maybe we've been rowing alongside them all this time. They just experienced the misfortune of having the searchlight expose them first. It's icky. I won't look at Kevin Spacey the same way again, and I feel repulsed when I watch Woody Allen eating Chinese takeout in bed with Mariel Hemingway in Manhattan. The ickiness never totally goes away. This, alas, is our human condition. The ickiness never totally goes away. Now, she ends with the wonderful call to sort of uh, both the, both the, uh, a sort of affirmation of the law in its civic capacity and its ability to rein things in, and, but also a, a pointing to grace in some measure. And I thought, I don't know, where, where, where does it leave? Do you guys find you can't, you know, usual suspects come on and you're just going to change the channel? Like what, what's the... Well, I went to see. I went. I saw Bill Cosby do live stand-up like 20 years ago, and he was hilarious. It was like amazing. And now I think back to that, and I was like, oh, like what? What was he doing before and after? And not as happy. Funny. I always wanted to write a piece of. I always wanted to write a piece about Bill Cosby, like for Mockingbird. And then, like, I'm so glad I didn't. (laughs) It's like because the show is so good. It was such a portrait of gracious fatherhood, and like now that piece will never be, you know, like never be written. Yeah, I mean, I have like a whole thing in my brain when people are Scientologists that I have a hard time watching their movies, and that was already there for me before this happened. Um, I never, Ooh. anytime Tom Cruise is in something or John Travolta, I'm like, no, I'm not watching that. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm not, yes, <laughs> I'm not gonna watch it. Phenomenon. Um, so funny, we went to see Thor right after the news about Kevin Spacey broke, and I had heard this interview with a mother of a child who was a child actor who had been molested, and she talked about how pervasive that is in the Hollywood community and how no one comes forward because it will literally ruin the child's career forever. She wasn't talking about by name, by her child. And um, she said, you just wouldn't believe how much this is everywhere. And so we went to see Thor, a movie which has no children in it. And Kevin Spacey's not in it either. And it ruined the movie for me. Like I like, and it was a totally fun, funny, you know, but like, I kept, I kept thinking of that the whole time. Like we watch these big productions and we, we forget about like all these people in the midst of it who, who suffer for us to see this. But then that becomes like, that's like everything in our lives, right? Like we wear clothes that are made in sweatshops. Like suddenly like everything sort of gets hit by that. But I loved Abby's piece. I loved how she said, you know, great art can be created by terrible people. And that it's like we long to identify with these artists until they do something terrible. And then we want to be repulsed because we're like, we would never do that. But then also it's like you, you identify with them so much and then you're like, oh, like, what if I could do that? What if that's happened? What if I have done that? And like, how do I like, you know, remove myself from this monstrous person? So it's a great piece. It made me think of uh, Ruby Sales. You guys know Ruby Sales, the civil rights activist who, mm-hmm. remember the Episcopal Seminary and Jonathan Daniels mm-hmm. who took the bullet? He took it for Ruby Sales in 1964, I think it was. She came to visit Charlottesville and she was here actually just recently. And the paper this morning reported on her talk. I, I should have gone, but I was uh, <laughs> stuffing envelopes for our fundraising letter, which you will all be receiving soon. But this is the report they gave. They, she, she, when asked about the possibility of future white nationalist in Charlottesville, she discouraged violent confrontation as the means to stop racism. She's, we certainly don't do it by chasing one right-wing neo-Nazi group after the other. It strikes me that the movement chased us, and now we're chasing them. Earlier in the evening, while discussing the recent white nationalist rally in August, Sales said justice should not be confused with revenge. 
Any call for justice that does not offer a pathway for redemption is revenge and not justice. I know it's not popular, but any movement that says that people are trapped by their history and cannot change is not a hopeful movement. That's called moral nihilism. We've got to really understand that there are ways toward redemption. Now, she's a, you know, you guys would be happy to know she's, I think, an ordained Episcopalian. This, But she's this incredible older sort of black lady with these dreads. And, right. and she's got the kind of moral authority to say these things that are unpopular. I didn't say it. But what she's talking about is grace, I think. And the only way forward in any of this, whether or not we're ready to hear it, maybe in Charlottesville, that happened in August. And this is happening second by second. Maybe we need a little bit of a pause to take it in because, you know, you have Kathy Lee Gifford saying, oh, I forgive Matt Lauer. And you'd be like, well, Kathy, Kathy Lee, why don't you just hear a little bit more about the, you know, the button under the desk Mm -hmm. and the sort of the stuff that was really going on before we pronounce a kind of blanket forgiveness because it doesn't Mm -hmm. really sink in. It doesn't have any teeth. However, Ruby Sales does say that any call for justice that does not offer a pathway for redemption is revenge and not justice. And she says that's moral nihilism. I want to underline that. I think it's beautiful. I'm going to put it in the weekender tomorrow. So what's the line between redemption and improvement? Like how do those things interface? Because redemption, I agree. I don't know. I I don't know how hopeful to be about progress. Mm. (laughs) You know? Yeah, I know. Um, I know that's in there. Like, you can never do it again. It's like Robert Capon's line about how, what if the tax collector just went out and kept collecting more taxes? Did he not? Was he? Was the justification invalid? Yeah, and if the I don't know, if the Bible shows us anything, it's one of my, an Old Testament professor in seminary. You know, I once said, "Is there is it was there ever a golden age of Israelite faithfulness?" And he just laughed at me because, of course not. You know, and the early church is just as disastrous. And and Peter goes back and forth between proclaiming Jesus as Lord and then you know get behind me, Satan, or denying him three times, or this recidivistic tendency. And I, I want to believe in redemption and improvement. And I, mean, I guess it goes back to what Gerhard Fordis said once. You know, about his students asking him. Now that he was older, did he feel more holy? And he said, I, mm. I have less energy to sin than I used to. That's not holiness, but I do, I'm more comfortable with God's love for me as I am than I was when I was a younger person. And that fills me with hope and joy and peace. And maybe that's what improvement looks like, you know, rather than sort of morality. Moral yeah. I mean, I, I guess I keep thinking about the women in the midst of this who have had these horrific things done to them and how they never get that back how that never changes, how the entire trajectory of their lives has changed. So like if they're not married, who they marry will be different if they marry. If they are married, it could destroy their marriage. They never get off that track once they've been put on it. And I think that's what makes us want to make people like Matt Lauer suffer tremendously. And it's what makes us hate the idea of forgiveness which is why Christianity is such a frustrating religion because he is offered forgiveness. And these women, they're really promised comfort in finding their own level of forgiveness. I mean, that, you know, I mean, that's what we see like in scripture. This is what we hear in the gospel so often. It's like, you know, they, and that's, that's like more than I can bear, (laughs) which makes me probably not a very good Christian, but it's more, you know, it's more than I can bear. It's sort of like this. So on this side of heaven, I don't know what that is going to look like. I mean, I think honestly, I mean, I feel like I've said this already, but 
I think the, the, the huge overwhelming issue here is that we want to create a perfect world. Everybody is looking towards one building yes. block after another. Like yes. I heard a commentator today say, well, you know, they've got this sort of, this is happening, this is happening and that's progress. And so we'll fix this and then everything will be better. And it's like, I just don't believe that. I mean, I just don't think that I have no evidence for that. You know, and the other thing I, I think about in the midst of this is that gender and power has changed so dramatically in our lifetimes. And we're just expecting people to be like politically correct robots. And that would be awesome if I could turn every man into a politically correct robot that preferably did the laundry. If it's my husband, that would be amazing. Like I would love to be able to do that, but that's not how it works. You know, it's just, I don't know, guys. Well, I, I totally agree with you saying about trying to make a perfect world. But uh, and even on top of that, when I think about places I've lived yes. that were coming the closest to achieving that ideal, they were the most depressed, most anxious, most hidden, uh, yeah. most, you know, high suicide rates, you know, because the closer you sort of get to it or think you're starting to get there, the more glaring the dissonance becomes between the gloss of perfection and the reality of sort of uh, pain and, and sin and all these things that right. you just can't. You just can't get away from, yeah. So it's it's a it's like you get you know you make it to the top and then you're like wait this right. yeah this is worse than I, I'm worse yeah, off I mean, than I was before. This is all awful, but on some level it feels like I mean when I saw the Garrison Keillor thing come up, I just started to laugh out loud, and I love Garrison Keillor. I immediately called Dave because it's like especially for those of us who are big public radio fans, there's a certain righteousness that we had assumed about ourselves and about our men and how progressive they were and how they treat women right. And they don't do things like this and they don't have those thoughts. And suddenly it's just all been ripped off. Right. And it's like, Oh no, this is who we are. Right. Like this is sin like lived out for us. Like, and it's been there all along is the terrifying thing. The only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine as Reinhold Niebuhr said. This all kind of leads in, I think, kind of beautifully to our final item, which is, you know, that we're about to head into Advent, the season. One of the things I think, Sarah, you brought to my attention, but actually Paul Walker did as well yesterday, so I knew we had to talk about it, was Fleming Rutledge's wonderful sermon devotion called Advent Begins in the Dark. Mm. And she writes, Advent Begins in the Dark, and these are dark times. Now, she was writing this in 2011, and the tone of it, she just lists all these terrible things that are going on in the world, and you think... Gosh, 2011 seems pretty great. But uh, she says it's, it's, it's a dark time. And then she says religion, in quotes, is not the answer. Religion is essentially man-made. It is projected out of our wishes, our longings, our spiritual capacities. Spirituals, in quotes. Advent reminds us human incapacity is the condition in which we find ourselves. Our inability to gain any lasting victory of light over darkness it is from beyond human capacity that the announcement comes, Behold, I am doing a new thing, Isaiah forty three nineteen. The light that shines in the darkness is not the light of religion, not even the light of religious faith. It is the uncreated light, not part of this darkened sphere at all, not bound by it, not contiguous with it, not limited by it, not projected from it, not coexistent with it, but rather God from God, light from light, very God of very God, begotten, not created. Therefore, the new thing is not just generalized religious comfort, but the incarnation itself, the invasion of this present evil age by the deliverer who arrives from a sphere of power entirely independent of and qualitatively greater than the powers that dominate and ravage this world. 
Happy Advent to you guys. Where are you with this as we approach the first Sunday of Advent? I'm struck again every Christmas by, well, how crazy it is, how stressful it is, how many hopes I have for the Christmas, the Advent that I'm going to be able to give or not be able to give my children. And then the reminder over and over again that as crazy and messy and stressful as I think my Christmas is going to be, it's like absolutely nothing compared to Mary and Joseph. You know, and that that Jesus is born into just a total disaster, a total disaster. Horseback, leaving home, pregnant. If my wife had to have a baby with animals around, like it would be a bad scene. <laughs> you know, I, I just imagine like the uh, the fights that Mary and Joseph got. Why didn't you make reservations? Get on Travelocity, you know. And then these like nasty shepherds show up who are like essentially hill people, and you know, it's um, hill it's people. just a, it's. The hills have eyes. <laughs> I mean, some of us are hill people. That's not. That's no. I mean, it's just a disaster. And yet, that is the. That's the situation that that Jesus chooses to be born and to be like. I I am with you, in the disaster, in the mess. I, I've come to to redeem uh, the, the humblest of and 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 most discouraging of circumstances. Yeah. What do you think, Sarah? Are you going to be preaching soon? What would you say? I actually am preaching soon. I was like, as I was reading Fleming's reflection, I was like, I don't know if I can talk about this stuff because I read this and it makes me think of all the sexual harassment stuff. And it makes me think about how many of my friends really earnestly and totally well-meaning and, and righteously, I mean, rightly have said, you know, we need to shine a light on all this bad stuff that's happening. So when I read Fleming Rutledge talk about the light that shines in the darkness is not a light of religion, you know, not contiguous with it, not limited by it, not projected from it, not coherent with it, but rather God from God, light from light, very God from very God. You know, I think about how different our light is from God's light, that our light is a light that seeks to find the sins of others, the wrongdoings of others, and to judge them and to persecute them. And that feels like the right thing to do right now. <laughs> and the fun thing to do also, just to name it, right? That's always kind of a yeah, jazzy a thing to pull out your sin flashlight and find out who's messing up. And then there's this crazy thing that happens where we hear about this light that comes into the world, this light that is not of this world you know, the light of Christ and, and that light shines directly on us. And that's all we see is the light. And that light says, Oh, I see all those things. And I came to save you from them. And it's so different <laughs> from the light we keep wanting to shine on other people right now. Well, come Lord Jesus. I think we, uh, no place to go from there outside of just, just to sit. And, uh, what do they say? Wait, sit and wait. <laughs> I, Pretty impatient. I do want to say Fleming doesn't say anything about putting up your Christmas tree, so you can go ahead and put it up, folks. Okay. <laughs> oh boy, here she comes. I want to say thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be back, and we're going to be back in two weeks from now. And uh, for those listeners, thank you again for your patience with us. We're really glad you stick with us. And uh, do want to say we did send out our big year-end appeal and newsletter, and we need your help. So if you feel so inclined, keep a look after that. Also, put something on the website. But we're really, really pumped to be back and to be with you. Happy Advent. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at 
mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.